It is a pleasure to be here. The main hope of a nation lies in the proper education of its youth. These words spoken by the Dutch theologian Erasmus in the 15th century could not have been any truer today had they been spoken now. Um, despite the clear admonition of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that it would be better for man to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be cast into the depths of the sea and to lead an innocent child astray, we are nonetheless seeing a level of ideological education in this country that we've never seen in its history. It is within this cultural backdrop that government has introduced the new regulations making relationships education in the primary level and relationships and sex education, which I'll refer to as RSE throughout the talk, mandatory in the, in the secondary level, already adding to the existing quality duty owed by schools. Now the new regulations are different in the sense that they apply to all schools, maintained, independent academies and everything in between. Now in fact, the Department of Education has been very vocal in insisting that LGBT elements now form part of the teaching that all of our schools in the United Kingdom, regardless of religious character, must teach. They've done so under numerous banners, inclusivity, modern British values, anti-bullying, and tolerance, just to name a few. Uh, the Department of Education itself is beginning to look and act more like an LGBT campaign organization than a government department. It has seemingly ignored its own equality duty, which requires it to promote good relations among the protected characteristics by going all in on sexual orientation and gender reassignment and doing so at the expense of parental rights and freedom of religion. <clears throat> Not surprisingly, there's been a corresponding increase across the country where schools have begun to embrace the so-called new normal. Children as young as four are being exposed to nothing short of indoctrination. The manipulation of vulnerable young hearts and minds has been put on full display on school web pages and social media across the land. Voices chanting, doggies panting, clad in leather, perfect weather. Dancers jumping, music pumping, loving kisses, so delicious. A storybook by Gail Pittman entitled This Day in June, winner of the 2015 Stonewall Book Award for Best Children's Book, used, for example, in schools in the London borough of Tower Hamlets, along with Stonewall posters in those schools which say, I am gay and Christian, you can be both, and I am proud to be both gay and LGBT. So the million dollar question is, what does relationships education and RSE actually entail? Now let's go to the statutes and find out. Now section 34 of the Children and Social Welfare Act establishes the legal framework for the new regulations and sets out that pupils must learn three things. The first, safety and forming and maintaining relationships. Second, the characteristics of a healthy relationship. And third, how relationships may affect physical and mental well-being. Importantly, the education must be age appropriate and have due regard for the religious background of the pupils. So already, already we should be asking ourselves, looking at what is happening with no outsiders in Birmingham, and saying, how is that age appropriate? And how is that having any regard to the religious backgrounds of the pupils in Birmingham? And the answer is simple, it's not. Yeah. And the new regulations themselves adopt the identical language of the Children and Social Welfare Act by adding one additional element. So now we have four elements that are mandatory as part of relationships education in RSE. 
So the, the fourth element is now that pupils must be taught the nature of marriage and civil partnership and their importance for family life and the bringing up of children. Now this new element does create a statutory obligation for schools to teach that the legal status of marriage now includes same-sex marriage and to indicate that as a result other legal forms of families exist. Nothing in the regulations, however, and this is important, suggests anything about teaching LGBT elements as being a mandatory part of either relationships education or RSE apart from this caveat. Like so many things in this world, nothing is black and white. The new regulations must be read in light of other statutory obligations, and I would say paramount among them are parental rights. So what does the law say about parental rights on this issue? So section 9 of the Education Act 1996 could not be any clearer. It states that when exercising or performing all of their respective powers and duties under the Education Acts, the Department of Education, local authorities, and by extension schools themselves shall have regard to the general principle that pupils are to be educated in accordance with their parents' wishes. Pretty clear. Protocol 1, Article 2 of the European Convention of Human Rights is read into the Human Rights Act is another statutory obligation. And it is just as clear and almost the identical language. And it reads, in the exercise of any functions which it assumes in relation to education and to teaching, the state shall respect the right of parents to ensure such education and teaching is in conformity with their religious and philosophical convictions. It is therefore a legal requirement that schools in England respect and neither undermine nor interfere with the ability of parents to raise their children in accordance with their Christian faith or whatever faith they may bring to the table. Now this same requirement in nearly identical language has also been ratified by the United Kingdom in no less than five other international treaties, those being the Convention Against Discrimination in Education. That's one of my personal favorites. We lawyers have weird hobbies like picking up favorite statutes. But. Uh, the International Covenant on Economic and Social Rights, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and last but not least, the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Precisely stated, parental rights apply to relationships education and RSE in two distinct but correlated ways. First, the issue of opt-outs has been a very important aspect of all of this, an essential part of the debates that have permeated this entire issue moving forward. Now the results of the public consultations that happened last year evidenced that the vast majority of parents didn't want LGBT elements as part of the education. Now, clearly that was ignored. Equally strong were the responses about opt-outs, which again was largely ignored. Now parents came back and they came to a, a better solution, so that was a show of force, but clearly <coughs> Parliament has not been listening to parents on the ground. Now, current legislation allows for nearly unconditional withdrawal from sex education. It's also not mandatory in independent schools to teach sex education at all right now. So this changes from September 2020. The amended Education Acts of 1996 and 2002 and the independent school regulations will now make relationships education mandatory in primary schools with no right of withdrawal. Relationships and sex education at secondary level will have a bifurcated right of withdrawal, meaning that the relationships education part of it, there will be no right of withdrawal. The sex education relationship will have um, a parental right of request for withdrawal up until, and, uh, I'm sorry, up to and until three terms before the child 
turns 16. When the child turns 16, that individual is allowed to choose whether they want to attend classes or not. Now, if primary schools choose to teach sex education, they're allowed to do so. Um, that, that's currently the law right now as well. There still has to be an automatic right and an unconditional right of withdrawal from sex education at the primary level. Now, distressingly, the right of withdrawal in secondary schools from sex education has been watered down significantly. The exact amendment reads that the request to opt out of sex education will be granted, and I quote, unless or to the extent that the head teacher considers the people should be excused. Now, the Department of Education guidance on the question of a head teacher's discretion in rejecting an opt-out request um, suggests that there must be exceptional circumstances for doing so. However, and this is a big problem, nowhere in the guidance and nowhere in the statute do they define what exceptional circumstances mean. So the reality is that head teachers almost have an unfettered discretion on this issue. And the problem with that position is that legally speaking, especially under the Human Rights Act, it's very clear that the government um, or any individual school for that matter does not have a right to prevent a parent from withdrawing their children where the subject matter at hand is of the quality that it could proselytize children on moral issues that thereafter undermines the way you want to raise your kids according to your Christian faith or other religious or philosophical belief. This means that a blanket ban on removing a child from relationships education runs afoul of the Convention and the Human Rights Act. It also means in secondary schools that where sex education is being taught in a particularly aggressive or dogmatic way, that a conditional right of withdrawal also would be unlawful under convention jurisprudence. Now this is important because people talk about indoctrination. It's, it's a big powerful word and people assume it to be bigger than it really is. What indoctrination is, legally speaking, um, as defined by the European Court of Human Rights, is any teaching that fails to be objective, critical, or pluralistic. And I would suggest that that book that I read a few minutes ago is the very definition of indoctrination. Now the line between teaching tolerance of those who identify as homosexual, affirming their lifestyles or even celebrating them, is a fine one. And teachers are going to consistently get it wrong. We in the legal business, judges are getting it wrong, so how do we expect individual teachers across the country to get it right? Now, apart from opt-outs, parental rights also attach to the content of what is being taught, whether mandatory or not. The new regulations require that all schools have written policies of what will be in their relationships in RSE. Schools will be required to consult with all of you before setting up that policy. So that is your turn, your time, to show up, have your voice heard, and tell them what is not acceptable and what's acceptable. They must also provide teaching materials that will be used in the curriculum so they can't tell you one thing and sneak it through the back door on the other side. Which, I mean, I remember I was, I was on the radio when this was all happening and uh, the press release had come out from the Department of Education saying what was in the guidance and they were going to be saying, oh, this, we're teaching great stuff about how to be fit, how to have healthy friendships and how to sleep enough. Nothing about LGBT stuff. So the presenters say, well, what's wrong with that? Why would anyone be opposed to that? That's because they're not telling you the important stuff because they know it's contentious. That under the new law shouldn't be a problem because the, you just give the guidance to the school and say this is your legal obligation. If you do have a problem, please call us. So for example, if a child, and another important point here is that 
Parental rights apply to the new regulations um, through this form of consultation and the partnership in guiding your child's education. So, for example, if you're a Christian parent and you send your child to a Christian school, surprise, surprise, you expect them to get a Christian education. And from those statutes I read earlier, you would suspect that your parental rights should be respected. So the good news is that if your child attends a Christian ethos school, like a Church of England school, it is to be accepted by the guidance that materials can be taught in a manner that is consistent with the ethos of the Christian school. So if Ofsted abides by that, which I hope they will, that's very good news. The other good news is as part of sex education, a Christian school can heavily promote abstinence only as part of its sex education. So there are some positive elements here. Similarly, the government guidance on how equality matters are to be taught makes it clear that faith schools are not to be expected to offend their values or their ethos in how they undertake their equality duty. As the guidance states, it's not the intention of government to undermine the ethos of any faith school. Nonetheless, what is most concerning about the new guidance is that it seems to be agenda-driven rather than education-driven. So for example, Nick Gibb, the Minister for School Standards, has recently hailed the new regulations for being the first of their kind. No other government has taken such steps on such sensitive moral issues through education. Now, personally, I get nervous every time I hear the government here saying this is the first time anyone's ever done this, because those blanket statements, when they're made, are typically self-praising and self-serving. And um, rather than being groundbreaking, more times than not, they're being morality-breaking. And other examples of self-praise has come when they said, we're the first government ever to introduce human-animal hybrids, first government to have three-parent embryos. I don't think that's something to particularly be proud of, nor, nor is RSE, for that matter. Uh, particularly concerning about the quote, if we could put the quote up. I'll give you a chance to, to read the quote here. Particularly concerning about this quote is the elevation of Stonewall, a, a campaigning organization of the same status as churches or faith groups. It's frankly shocking to me that Stonewall seemingly has become the arbiter of all things suitable and unsuitable in education, as if there's some sort of government agency and not a politically driven campaign organization. Mr. Gibbs' quote, I would suggest, is also quite delusional. For him to believe that this agenda is landing successfully in schools completely ignores the reality that parents all over the country have been revolting over the sexualized nature of what is being introduced in our schools. We've seen the mass protests in Birmingham which have grabbed national headlines for weeks. We've seen a petition from parents on, of every background and religion across the country against the manner the new regulations are being implemented in schools. And my concern further extends to the guidance itself, which is meant to inform schools about their obligations under the new regulations. Now, we have to remember, go back to the beginning of my presentation, there were four elements that were in the statutes that were required. Now, the problem is that the guidance goes well beyond those four issues. They say, well, you've got to teach about abortion and sexuality. Where, where was that in the statute? So, one element of the Department of Education's guidance that I find personally most troubling is that it suggests pupils be taught about gender identity, which again, not in the statutes or the regulations. Now, first of all, note, it's important. When gender identity or abortion or any of these things aren't mentioned in the statute, but they're mentioned in the guidance, that means they're ultra vires, meaning they don't legally apply. So that's important. 
Now, the issue with this, though, is that schools think they apply because they don't read the statutes. So schools are going to be going forward and putting this stuff in as if this is the law. So that, I have a big problem with that. Um, I have another big problem with the fact that Ofsted um, is being asked to police these elements. And they're doing so within the scope of their inspection. So, for example, through uh, consideration of people's personal development, behavior, or welfare, or the people's spiritual, moral, and social and cultural development, Ofsted can come in and say, you're not doing your job, we're going to downgrade you. And I'm here to tell you, if they downgrade you, call us and we're going to go to court. <laughs> they give you the suspenders just to make it seem like you really... <laughs> so second, the teaching of gender identity in schools has already had massively detrimental impact on countless children and families. Nigel and Sally Rowe, two of my most favorite people in the world, people who have been supporting a Christian concern for quite a while now, um, deeply Christian people who want to instill in their children biblical beliefs, biblical beliefs that would include Genesis 1.27 where scripture says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, or Matthew 19.4 where Christ says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Interesting, I was, I was researching this, and uh, there's a passage in Jeremiah which asks, can men have children? Can men be pregnant? That's not one that's often quoted, but it's a fascinating one. There was also a Monty Python skit about that. But. Uh, in seeking to raise their children according to their Christian beliefs, they sent their sons to a Church of England school on the Isle of Wight. Now, within two years, both of their children, ages six and eight, found themselves in class with two boys who were now wanting to be identified as two girls. Now the confusion from all of this led their older son, because both of these boys grew up with these other boys, um, to be removed and to be home educated. He wasn't coping well with it. They kept their youngest son in. They had strong ties to the community and the school. The, the, both Nigel and Sally worked within the school. And they wanted to make it work out. So they were a popular family within the school community until all of this happened. They wrote a letter to the school saying, look, here's the parental rights law. Um, this isn't in your anti-bullying measures. You haven't really thought this through. Tell me what happens when these kids are at the age of 13. Yeah. What's going to happen with changing facilities and all of that? And the letter that they got back shocked them, shocked me. Um, and it was written, co-written by the diocese, which said that if you are unable to believe that these two boys are actually girls, you are transphobic. And it's our duty as a school to teach not only pupils, but parents alike, about gender identity so that they can fix the culture. Similarly, the Christian Legal Center has been supporting Joshua Sutcliffe, um, a math teacher who was fired for misgendering. Yeah. Uh, that, that one also kind of boggles the mind because you have a math class, you have several biological females in the class, one is wanting to be identified as a male. Joshua has a slip of the mind and says, well done, girls, when they answer their question. And he's fired for misgendering. Now, did he intend to, to say anything bad? He was affirming those children. And this is, this is how far the culture comes. That was the first incident, in my, in my knowledge, of a teacher, teacher being fired in this country for misgendering. And most recently, as reported in the Daily Mail, Christian Legal Center has been supporting the Reverend John Parker and another individual, two Church of England school governors who resigned their positions 
because the school was aggressively pushing a trans agenda. Um, the primary school refused to tell parents beforehand that one of their students was going to be coming in, a boy coming in as a girl with new dress and a new dame. They refused to tell the parents beforehand, leading to the resignation of these two wonderful governors. Now, a mermaid's campaigner was asked to come in to the school and teach the governors and, and the teachers about what the law says on this issue. And they were told that if you out a student by telling the parents beforehand, meaning if you follow your statutory obligation and inform the parents beforehand, you're committing a hate crime. Wow. So imagine you're just a run-of-the-mill teacher and you're hearing, oh my goodness, a hate crime. You get, you get nervous. If you misgender, that's a hate crime. They were told that too. None of which is true. They were told that if a boy wants to shower with girls or use the same toilet and changing facilities and you don't allow them to do so, that you are breaking the law. Categorically false. Categorically false. And the end of their presentation was saying, now you're mermaids whether you want to be or not. So I'm going to end this thing by saying, I'm not ending yet, but I'm going to say that uh, you're now Christian concerned whether you like it or not. <laughs> 97. 97 is the number of children in the United Kingdom who were referred to gender identity clinics in 2009. That's one year before the Equality Act was enforced. 2,519. That is the number of children referred to gender identity clinics just last year. So the question is, how do we get from 97 children in one year, in such a short time frame, to 2,519? And the answer is that this is nothing short of a national safeguarding scandal. Now, a major part of the problem is no one really knows what gender reassignment means within the definition of the Equality Act. So it's surely not helpful that local authorities, Ofsted, and even the Department of Education, and some head teachers have been very active in telling us what they think it means in absolutist and often threatening terms, but more times than not with vague or non-existent references to the statutes what actually is the law. So what I mean when I say that no one knows what gender reassignment is, there's a great deal of confusion surrounding the legal status or even the meaning of the term gender reassignment, particularly as it relates to children, because it doesn't mention children in the definition. So I use the term gender reassignment instead of gender identity because gender identity is not protected under the Act. That's important. So when they said, we've got to be teaching gender identity, well, why? That's not in the Equality Act, it's gender reassignment. So the Equality Act 2010 defines gender reassignment this way. It's a, bit, it's a bit convoluted, but a person has a protected characteristic of gender reassignment if the person is proposing to undergo, is undergoing, or has undergone a process or part of a process for the purpose of reassigning the person's sex by changing physiological or other attributes of sex. So the act neither defines what is meant by process envisioned or proposal to undergo gender reassignment. But no binding case law whatsoever defines gender reassignment so expansively as to include children. A young child being gender confused or at times exhibiting behavior which isn't stereotypical for their gender at a young age is not gender reassignment. What is happening with the proliferation of transgender-affirming policies is an assault on informed consent. Parents and even the children themselves are being allowed to dictate their own diagnosis 
to what otherwise might be a serious mental health issue, or more likely just a pass passing childhood phase. Now, as I said, gender identity and gender reassignment are not synonymous. A very strict legal process is required to obtain a gender, a gender recognition certificate pursuant to the Gender Recognition Act 2004. The applicants seeking legal recognition of their gender reassignment must be 18 years of age. So right there, that excludes children right off the bat. They must have lived for a period of at least two years in their reassigned or acquired gender, ending from the date of the application. They have to have evidence of gender dysphoria from a medical practitioner who specializes in the field of gender dysphoria or a chartered psychologist in the same field. They then have to go to a gender recognition panel who weighs all the evidence and then says whether they can be issued the certificate or not. That's a lot of steps. So it certainly seems a lot more than children coming to school without any medical evidence saying, today I want to be this, you know, I want, I'm a boy, I want to be a girl. Doesn't make sense. Leading cases like Croft v. Royal Mail have been clear that an overt step must be taken for anti-discrimination law to apply to gender reassignment. So to be clear, anatomy matters. Not only does anatomy matter, but so do precise legal definitions. So by analogy to another protected characteristic under the Equality Act, that being one that we're all familiar with, religion or belief, the House of Lords has ruled that for protection to attach to religion or belief, the individual claiming the protected characteristic must have serious and cogent beliefs. They have to believe it deep in their heart and they have to be able to explain that belief and that's fair. I say that's fair. When we then begin talking about gender reassignment, especially young children, a path which increasingly leads to the suppression of puberty and taking harmful hormones, I would suggest that it's absolutely ludicrous to claim that a child fully incapable of having serious and cogent beliefs or having any understanding of what is going to happen to him if he goes down that path is somehow gender reassignment, I'd say we've lost our way. Yeah. It's important to dispel the myths that a gender-confused a gender -confused child, his perceived rights are more important than everyone else's rights. Exactly. When schools implement gender-affirming policies which include teaching about gender identity, gender theory, they create a clash of rights. Mm. Because there's various rights holders in, this, in the school community, those being other pupils, their parents, and school staff. Now the Equality Act, even though the government seems to tout it as such, is not all-powerful and is not unqualified. Limitations on equality legislation are wholly lawful when they're done in the pursuit of a legitimate aim and tailored in a proportionate manner. So too, human rights law is also not infallible. Now, Article 8 of the Convention, as read into the Human Rights Act, does protect gender reassignment. That's a fact. It's also a fact that Article 8 is not absolute and can be limited on a number of legitimate grounds. So, Several of those grounds are that it can be limited for protecting health and morals of the other students. Because obviously the, the, the child coming in as gender reassigned or as transitioned is going to affect other pupils and what they believe on a daily basis. It also protects that individual child who more times than not needs pastoral care rather than affirmation in their confusion. So this idea that self-autonomy or self-realization is an absolute right is categorically false. Equality considerations should never trump parental rights, and more importantly, they should never, ever trump safeguarding. So it's my opinion that we, the adults in the room, need to grow up here and realize that we cannot be sacrificing our children 
on the altar of gender identity politics. Tolerance is not inherently good. And in fact, allowing children to be subjected to potentially lifelong physical and emotional trauma in the name of tolerance, I would say, is a moral evil. So finally, I would just like to thank all of you here in this room. In the UK, and not just in the UK, in America, in Western Europe, we've really lost our way on a lot of these issues. Views that show any dissent to the sexual orthodox of the day are shouted down. People are punished for them. People like Izzy, who will be speaking after me. So we need people like you in this room, the people at this event more than ever. People willing to stand up for the truth no matter what the consequences. People like Izzy, because the more people who stand, it's going to be a lot less easy for them yeah. to shout us down. Yeah. Such courage is in very short supply these days, but our courage is growing. It's growing every day by thousands and thousands of people. So I thank you for taking a brave stand. I thank you for all you do. Already in the short time that this issue has been in vogue, countless children have suffered and been affected and will suffer the lifelong physical, spiritual, emotional, and sometimes physical consequences of this agenda. It's for them and for our own children that we stand. Thank you. Thank you.